0: بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا وقرّه عيوننا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما انك على كل شيء قدير وبعد Alhamdulillah this is lesson 48 and in the past couple of classes we've been looking at the hijra the migration of different companions. We looked at the story of the hijra of Abu Salama and then his family. We looked at the hijra story of Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab anhu, as well as uh, Ayyash and Suhaib rumi and last week we were speaking about how Quraysh plotted once again to kill the Prophet Sallallahu And how shortly before they were to execute that, the angel Jibreel salam came to the Prophet ﷺ and conveyed the divine permission to make the hijrah. And someone last week watching online had asked a really good question about the timeline of events based on the Hadith reports and trying to reconcile what Sayyid Aisha said in the Hadith in bukhari and what we find in the other narrations. And last week I gave a fairly surface level answer, but I wanted to explore that a little bit because it does need some reconciliation and piecing together different narrations to get a sense of what happened and when. But we remember that the hadith of Sayyida Aisha anha in Sahih al-Bukhari is her retelling the events she witnessed when she was about six or seven years old. You have to keep that in mind. So when we look at the narrations, we see number one, Quraysh conspired to kill the Prophet ﷺ, using a handful of people from the various clans so that when the assassination takes place, it will be distributed among all of the clans and all of them would be responsible for paying the diya, the blood money. And this would prevent Banu Hashim from retaliation because they can't take on everyone. If it was one clan doing the deed, then Banu Hashim could easily take on that one clan. But by distributing it among the various clans, they would be incapable. So they plot. And at this point, the angel Jibreel salam, comes and informs the Prophet wasalam, about the plot. And the Prophet sallallahu tells Ali to do what? Sleep in his bed. He tells him to sleep in his bed and as Sayyidina Ali is sleeping in the bed, the Prophet ﷺ is waiting for them to arrive outside of his house. They arrive outside of his house waiting to come in. And he recites from the beginning of Surah Yasin until he reaches the verse where Allah mentions the covering in front of them and behind them and how they are enveloped such that they do not see. He recites that verse And Allah Ta'ala blinds them, not from everything, but blinds them from seeing him exclusively, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So he leaves the house, he sprinkles dust towards them. It's even on their heads, but they don't realize it. Until some time later, long after the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam had left, uh, another man unrelated to the event, saw them all waiting outside the house. And he asked them, what are you doing? And they said, we're waiting to go in, waiting for him to fall asleep. And he says, well, Muhammad already left. And so they look around, they then see this dust on their head, and they realized that he's gone. Now, they waited until the morning to go inside of the house. This is interesting. In the Sirah collections, you find these narrations which say that these people who are all outside of the house, they were there at nighttime, And the man comes and says that he already left. Another narration says that they waited until the morning time to go inside. And when they went inside, they discovered of course Imam Ali. Well, why did they do this? It seems that they did this because although the man said that the Prophet had left, they are looking through a crack in the door and they see someone sleeping wrapped up in a blanket someone's there who is it so the narration says they waited until the morning and they go inside and as they enter imam Ali rises from the bed and he lets out he says very loudly the one who spoke to us told us the truth and then they said, where is your sahib? Where's your companion? And Sayyidina Ali, the young man, he says, am I a watcher over him? I mean, is it my responsibility to keep tabs on him and know where he's at at all times? And then when he said that, they, they smacked him. So they began to smack this young boy around, and then they take him to al masjid al-Haram and they keep them there. They detain him for a while, and eventually they let him go. So, someone might ask, why didn't they just barge in in the middle of the night before all of this happened? Ibn Hisham gives us the answer. Ibn Hisham, in his seerah, he records that the individuals were outside of the house, and they couldn't decide who among them would be the first to strike. So they decided to wait until the morning for the Prophet Sallallahu to come out. So what you have here are two different accounts or two different possible ways of carrying out the assassination. The initial suggestion was for them to all go from various clans to the house of the Prophet Sallallahu wait for him to fall asleep, and then go inside and assassinate him altogether. And that seems to be the initial plan. But as they get to the door, they're discussing, well, who is going to be the one to go in first? Because although it's distributed among the clans, you have to think about this. Imagine a small mud house with a small door. You can't fit everyone in the door at the same time. Who is going to be the point man to go in first? Who is presumably the one to strike first? So they're talking about it. Who's going to be the person to go in, the, in first. You know, if you have a, a few people, you have the first one, the second one, the third one, and so they couldn't decide because, you know, if things get out of hand and it points to one person only, well, that's Ben-Hashim against that entire clan. So they decided to wait until the morning for him to come out, and they will collectively attack him as he comes out. So it's not just one person dealing the blow first. This is according to the narration in Ibn Hisham. So the man tells them that he left but they wait until the morning because they, they still see someone sleeping. They discover it's Imam Ali and he says what he says and they chide him and they beat him and then they detain him keeping him at Masjid al-Haram. So it appears from this narration and others that that evening when the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam left, he went straight to the house of Abu Bakr as siddiq And it appears that he stayed the rest of the night there at his house and waited until the next night to leave with Abu Bakr on the hijrah journey. This is what it seems like when you piece the narrations together. However, the hadith of Bukhari recorded by Sayyidina Aisha radiAllahu Anha mentions him arriving in the middle of the day because remember she said that we saw this man approaching with his turban wrapped around his face in the middle of the day and it was a hot day at that. So the question is when did that visit occur? Was it multiple visits? When did the family know? You know it's not so clear when that happened. We could say that this could have been after the angel Jibril informs the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam about the plot, and then in the middle of the day he goes to them and tells them to prepare. And then later that night, they come and attempt to assassinate him. And then he leaves it that night, stays during the day with Abu Bakr al-Siddiq, and then leaves that following night. Or he may have returned home to gather belongings or take care of certain matters. It's not clear. However, what we do discern from this is that there was some secrecy in the plan. You know, The fact that it's not clear from the narrations themselves tells you that it was done in a very subtle and secretive way. One scholar tried to reconcile these narrations by saying that the Prophet returned to his house the next day after going to the house of Abu Bakr as siddiq And then he returned later that day in the midday. So according to that interpretation, the people camped outside of the house waiting to assassinate him. He leaves, stays for the night with Abu Bakr for the rest of the night, comes back to the house the next day, returns in the middle of the day. And that's when Sayyidah Aisha sees him with the turban wrapped around his face. This is what one scholar says but it's entirely speculative. So we just try to piece together these narrations as best as we can. We have Aisha mentioning the midday, and she's recounting an experience when she was six or seven years old. So we said last week that many scholars say that the beginning of the hijrah of the Prophet began the moment he left his own house to go to the house of Abu Bakr al-Siddiq radiallahu anhu. But when you look at the narration of the Hijrah from Abu Bakr's perspective, obviously for him, it's starting from leaving his own house to going to the cave of Thawr. And that's where most of the narrations describe the Hijrah journey. From his house, going to the cave, staying for three days, and then following the journey going northward. So we've now arrived at that part of the story. Now... There's a couple of important points we want to make about the hijrah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Although we read about the Quraysh and their plot to assassinate the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and then this permission to make the hijrah, the Prophet's previous approach to the tribes and to hijrah, to Medina, were not steps taken solely to secure personal protection. It wasn't just about safety. So when you look at how the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi presented himself to the tribes during the Hajj season, in a few years before Hijrah, when you look at his own approach to the Hijrah, the primary objective of the Hijrah was not about just being safe from attacks. He was enduring attacks for many, many years. There were other threats and attempts to kill him for many, many years. That wasn't the primary motivation. We find in Sahih Muslim evidence of this because in Sahih Muslim there's a narration about another who, w- who would become a companion by the name of Tufail ibn Amr al-Dawsi. Tufail ibn Amr al-Dawsi was the chief of the tribe of daws Does anyone know a famous Dawsi? Sahabi, anyone come to mind? Perhaps the most famous Dawsi companion was Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu. He was the most famous Dawsi. Now, Dawsi, the people of Daws are in the area of Tihama, so they're further south. And Abu uh, Tufayr bin Amr al is a long story about how he became Muslim. Uh, it was basically him as a tribal leader going for the Hajj, hearing all these warnings from Quraysh about listening to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam but he listens to him and then Iman is given to him and it grows. Anyhow, in that story, in Sahih Muslim, Tufayr ibn Amr al-Dawsi offered the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam the opportunity to move in that region and he offered to put him in a qal'a, you know, we call a qal'a a fortress, and there's different kinds of fortresses, but if you look at the, the, the fortresses of that time in Arabia, you still have some today. Like the ruins remain, you can see what they look like. These are mud brick, uh, multi-level structures that have gates, that have ramparts, that have means of protecting the people inside. There's art, There's places for archers, you name it. They had one of these. And Tufayr bin Amr al Dawsi offered the Prophet ﷺ the chance to go there to secure himself in this qal'a, this fortress, where the Daws tribesmen would defend him from the outside and the inside. But the Prophet ﷺ refused. So it wasn't just about safety. If it was just about safety, he would have gone there. We also covered the narrations. Uh, many, many weeks before where the Prophet presented Islam to some of the different tribesmen and they offered to help him in return for securing political power. Basically, they're saying, we'll help you, we'll offer you refuge, we'll give you a place of safety, but when you defeat Quraysh eventually, you have to give us a share of the power. He refused that. So it wasn't about Safety, the guiding spirit of the hijrah before physical safety was finding a base for spreading the deen of Islam. That's it. Safety was also a factor for sure, but it wasn't the primary factor. The Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the Quran the reasons for the hijrah. And there's three or four verses of the Qur'an that mention the reasoning for the hijrah. In two verses, you have both in Surah Al-Nahl, Allah Ta'ala mentions reason number one, the hijrah was because Muslims were being oppressed on account of their religion. Allah Ta'ala says, وَالَّذِينَ هَاجَرُوا فِي اللَّهِ Those who made hijrah in the path of Allah after they were oppressed. So oppression, fleeing oppression. In the other verse in Surah An-Nahl, Allah mentions another reason. Hajaru <laughs> Those who made hijrah after they were subject to fitna in their deen. Fitna in the deen here means they are put in positions where they are forced to choose between remaining Muslim or being tortured until they renounce their Islam. This is fitna, one of the meanings of fitna. Uh, fitna fitdin. Uh, another meaning of fitna here could mean just outright torture, right? And this is in Surat Al-Buruj in the story of the boy and the king, right? Those who put the believing men and women to trial by fire, right? Fatanul mu'mineena wal mu'minat That means putting them literally in a fire. So that was the second reason mentioned in the Quran. And the third one is because they were persecuted and driven out, right? Al min diyarihim Those who were expelled and cast out of their lands. So the Prophet was now given the permission to make the hijrah. And Allah chose Abu Bakr al-Siddiq to be his sahib, his travel companion. The Prophet instructs young Ali to stay behind to look after the goods and other items of property that were left with the Prophet as an amana. And he would safekeep these items. Imam Ali was instructed to look after them and give them back to their rightful owners. Because even Among his enemies, there were people who would entrust their precious belongings to him for safekeeping. Imam Al-Bayhaqi records a narration that young Ali radiallahu anhu served in this capacity for three days, returning items that belonged to people. And then after that, he made his own preparations for the hijrah as a young man. Returning now to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and Abu Bakr, they have everything packed. The camels are ready and the two of them left in the middle of the night from the house of Abu Bakr from the back door. The narration says it was from a small flap. And what they mean is back then you didn't always have wooden doors. Uh, even in my time in Yemen, living in a little mud house, we didn't always have doors. You just have these thick cloths hanging over, hence the importance of seeking permission to enter uh, because it's not about just knocking. People can just (laughs) move the cloth. So they went to this back flap in the back of the house and they headed for the Cave of Thawr. Now where is that cave located? If you look at Mecca on the map, the Cave of Thawr is to the south, but where's Medina? Mecca it is to the north. The Prophet was guided by Allah Ta'ala to go to this cave of Thawr which is to the south instead of going directly to the north because he knew that Quraysh would eventually be on the lookout if they weren't already on the lookout on the road going north to Medina to intercept him. So he went to the cave of Thawr with Abu Bakr The seerah accounts mentioned that Abu Bakr had asked his son Abdullah to stay behind and to go out into the city to listen and hear what people are saying the day after and to then go quietly at night to the cave of Thawr and report back what he's hearing. They wanted to get some intelligence. What's going on? What are they saying? What preparations are they making to search for the Prophet ﷺ? So Abu Bakr gave this job to his son. Abu Bakr also gave another job to a freed slave of his by the name of Amr bin Fuhayra. Amr bin Fuhayra was a Mawla, meaning he was a freed slave of Abu Bakr, but had with him a client relationship. So he instructed Amr bin Fuhayra to take his sheep out to pasture during the day, and then to bring the flock by the cave at night. And you'll see the reason for this soon. Going back to Mecca, so here you have the Prophet and Abu Bakr in the cave. You have Abdullah, Abu Bakr's son, listening to see what's going on and reporting it back. You have Amr bin Fuhairah discreetly pasturing his sheep and then bringing them back to the cave area so they can be milked for food. Going back to Mecca, we have the family of Abu Bakr. Where are they? They're still at home. We know what happened with Imam Ali. When they came inside, they saw Imam Ali and they smacked him up, took him to the Haram, detained him and then let him go. Ibn Hisham records a narration that the daughter of Abu Bakr, Asma bint Abi Bakr, would bring them provision in the evening. But this is a little bit ambiguous because if you go back to the narration of Sayyidha Aisha, what does it say? It says that Asma was preparing food and putting it in this cloth sack. Remember the hadith, it mentions that she didn't have something to tie it with, so she ended up gnashing a a tear in her belt or sash and tearing it into two and then tying that cloth sack filled with food. So presumably they're taking this food with them. So one narration is saying that she's preparing food and bringing it to the cave. The other narration is saying that it was prepared beforehand. How do we reconcile between these two? Some of the ulama say that she prepared the food beforehand and they took that with them. And that what it means is Amr bin Fuhayra is bringing the, the milk nightly and they're living off what she prepared nightly. Not that she physically went to the cave. It's there's a little discrepancy. And it goes back to the seerah and the, the narrations and. The strength of the chains, you know. At any rate, it is what it is. They were providing that provision either there at the house or going out there. Now, the path to the cave of Thor was very rocky. If you've ever gone, you'll see that. It, you know, people think of Arabia as this vast desert of soft sand, and you realize very quickly it's not. It's very rocky, and it's not the kind of place where you can just kneel down without moving the rocks lest they cut into your knees. You can't exactly walk barefoot easily in the rocky terrain south of Mecca or around Mecca. So the path to the cave was very rocky, and in the Musannaf of Ibn Abi Shaiba, he narrates a hadith which mentions that the soles of the shoes worn by the Prophet had worn through by the time they got near the cave because the terrain is so rough the leather soles were worn through before he even reached the cave uh, there is the uh, another hadith from Sayyidina Aisha where she talks about these details and she says that She heard from her father, Abu Bakr as-Siddiq, who told her about these experiences. She said that he said, you should have seen the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and me when we were climbing to the cave. If only you could have seen it. He says, his blessed feet were dripping with blood, but my feet were as smooth as stone. Aisha radiallahu anha commented that this is because the feet of the Prophet were not accustomed to walking barefoot. He was not accustomed to walking barefoot and therefore in that journey the soles wore through and he began to bleed from the bottoms of his feet. Now if you've ever walked barefoot on rocky terrain you know what happens. You tend to compensate by bending the knees to shift your way and lower your center of gravity so that it's less pressure on your feet. Just walk on a gravel road. As you hit one of those stones, you're gonna kneel slightly, lower the center of gravity to take that pressure off. You could probably navigate rocky terrain painfully by avoiding the larger stones and the smaller ones and walking around them. But you have to understand they are trying to cover their tracks too. So they're going south, but they're also covering their tracks. Because we have a hadith recorded by Ibn Hisham, which mentions that it was that he was walking on the, what we call the balls of the feet. So you could say walking on your tippy toes. If you walk on your tippy toes or the balls of your feet, it's, you do that to avoid leaving a footprint and to create this trail that's very uh, readily identifiable. And it's because of that, that his blessed feet began to bleed. This is how we understand it. Ibn Hisham also tells us a narration from Abu Bakr Saddiq anhu. Abu Bakr says that in that journey from Mecca to the cave of Thawr, he was walking around and taking different positions at different times. You know, just picture it, it's in the middle of the night, and they're walking. There's no flashlights, right? At times, he says, he was walking in front of the Prophet Wasallam, and at times he was walking behind him, and at times he was walking to his left, and to his, to his right, and to his other right, the left. And he's taking these different positions and this is not normal because usually your leader is leading the way and you're either following behind them or you're walking side by side. There's some narrations in the Shama'il that speak about this. al-Malaika. Uh, he would tell them not to walk behind him but to walk in front of him because to his back the angels are guarding him. And some scholars say that this is because he is like that caring father who has his children walk in front of him so he can observe them. It's him protecting them, not the other way around. Anyhow, in this narration, it says that Abu Bakr is going in the front, going to the back, going to the right, going to the left. And Abu Bakr said, when asked by the Prophet, why are you doing this? He said, When I'm thinking about those who are on the lookout ahead, I go to the front. He's thinking, there may be someone up ahead. I'm going to go to the front, so I'm the first one seen. But then I start thinking about those who might be trailing us, and then I go to the back. And then I think about those who might come to the sides, to the right or to the left, and I go there. So he's thinking and looking out for anybody who might be able to see them, who would alert others or even confront them. He was on the lookout and so the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said ya Aba Bakr if something were to happen would you wish it to befall you instead of me because if you are in the front and someone's intent on attacking from a distance you're taking the arrow if someone's attacking from the back and you're in the back you're taking the arrow from whichever side the attack comes from, if you're there, you're taking the arrow or the sword or the spear. So he asked him, are you wishing something to happen to you instead of me? And Abu Bakr says, yes. bilhaq By the one who sent you with the truth, there is no calamity that should befall except that I wish it for myself instead of you. So the Prophet Sallallahu Wasallam asked him this, knowing that he was ready for the sacrifice. We said that he was walking on the fronts of his feet to not leave any trace, and so his feet became bloodied. Yeah. There is one narration mentioned by Abu Nu'aym in Dalair Al-Nabuwa that says that when the feet of the Prophet Sallallahu became bloodied at this stage, Abu Bakr even took it upon himself to carry the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam to ease the pain from his feet until they got near the cave. So they're going and going in the night. I don't think we truly appreciate these things because we're so disconnected from nature and the reality of these things. Go somewhere in the random wilderness in the middle of the night and go from point A to point B without a flashlight in rocky terrain. How fast do you think you're going? How difficult will it be? So the narration continues. They continue like this until they reach the cave of Thawr. They reach the cave. Who do you think is going in first? It's Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiAllahu anhu. He enters the cave before the Prophet to feel around inside. Remember the word here for the cave is ghar, right? ghar uh, thawr not kahf, because kahf is a cave that's wide, it's expansive, there's room inside, or well, as the ghar is tight, you may fit one, two, three people max. It's very constricted. Abu Bakr goes in first, and he's looking for anything that's poisonous, snakes, scorpions, and the like. And, you know, we live very sheltered existence. We live in a very sheltered life where we keep nature at bay. The occasional spider comes into our house and people freak out. But just go camping and you realize that you're not really separate from nature. It's only a matter of time before you encounter nature, which is all around you anyway. So if you were a scorpion or a snake, wouldn't you want to be in a nice cool cave instead of being out in the hot sun? a nice damp cave where you can wait for other creatures looking to get into the same damp, cool cave to eat them. So Abba Bakr knows that there's a possibility there are poisonous snakes, scorpions, and the like. There's no flashlight, it's nighttime. So what he does, he takes his outer garment, this robe, and he begins to tear it into pieces. So he's feeling around in the cave for any area where there might be a snake. Just think about that. Go, go look for a small cave somewhere here. Go at nighttime. Turn off your flashlight and just move your hand around randomly. You don't know what's there, but he's willing to take the bite. He wants to take the bite or the sting because if he takes it, it's not going to reach the Prophet Sallallari. So he's feeling around, he has the robe, he takes it off and tears it into pieces, and he's stuffing holes and cracks and crevices where a snake might not be readily visible, nor couldn't be felt, but it could come out at some point. And he's doing this. Finally, after preparing the cave like this, he says, udkul ya Rasulullah, come inside. And they come inside and it's so tight and confined, the narration says, that the Prophet وسلم, rests his blessed head on the lap of Abu Bakr as Siddiq. So he's resting from the journey. Abu Bakr is leaning on the wall and taking their rest in this manner. Abu Bakr is awake. The Prophet والسلام, begins to sleep. And it was at this point that Abu Bakr عنه, got bit by a snake. He was bit on the heel of his foot. So his heels, his, the soles of his feet were, as the Aisha said, smooth as, as a stone because his feet were tough and he didn't have the issue walking in the rocky terrain. But that same smooth foot got bit by a snake. When he got bit by the snake, he didn't move his heel because he was afraid the snake might come out or he might wake the prophet sallallahu you have the picture you're thinking you know is he sitting cross legged likely he was sitting in this manner with his feet out and the snake comes and bites the heel what does he do if he moves the heel is going to wake the prophet sallallahu so he keeps the heel pressed in that area where afu afwan he presses the heel towards the area where the snake was to keep it there. He's in pain. It's not easy. And as he's sitting there writhing in pain, he begins to hold it in until he can't hold it in anymore. And he begins to cry as a man would cry out of pain, just this grimacing pain. And the tear comes from his eye, and then it lands onto the face of the Prophet wasallam. This wakes the Prophet and he asks him, what is the matter, Ya Abu Bakr? And he says, I've been bitten by a snake. And it was at this moment that the Prophet did the nafath, the light blowing on the heel of Abu Bakr where it was bitten and then the pain went away. This is recorded by Ibn Hisham Imam Al-Hakim, Imam Al-Bayhaqi, Imam Abu Nu'aym and, and others. And so he remains in this way, resting in the night. But remember, if we go back a few days or a day or two before, remember that when the would-be killers saw Ali, they beat him and detained him, when the same people Realize that the Prophet ﷺ had left, they go to Abu Bakr's house to investigate, to ask where he's at. They go to the house and the daughter, Asma bint Abi Bakr tells the story. She says, when Abu Bakr and the Messenger of Allah ﷺ left, a group of Quraysh came to the house, including Abu Jahl, and they stood at the door. I came out to them and they said, where is your father? Ya Bint Abi Bakr, where's your, where's your father? And she said, I don't know. She says that when I said that, Abu Jahl, who was a vile and disgusting, dissolute man, she said, he came, raised his hand and struck me on my face so violently that my earrings flew off. This is before the verse of hijab is revealed. Causing her earrings to fly off. He smacked the daughter of Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anhu. Who was heavily pregnant. Who was pregnant. Once Quraysh realized that the Prophet radiallahu anhu and Abu Bakr had left, the pursuit was on. They declared a reward for anyone who was able to capture and detain the Prophet radiallahu anhu they offered a reward of 100 she-camels for whoever would detain them and return them to Mecca. And you know from time to time in these classes, we look at these numbers to try to figure out what might that have been, been in monetary value. So I went looking around, what is the average cost of a female camel today? And it depends on the type, bacteri- uh, Bacterian or Dromedary. And it depends on the age and the quality and all of that. There's a lot of factors. But if you go to Arabia, what people call Saudi Arabia, if you go to Arabia, the average price of a female camel today starts at uh, between $1,500 to $2,000 U.S. And, of course, we're speculating here what that would have been of value in their time. But even by today's time, that would have been between $150,000, $200,000, if not more, we don't know. It's a lot of money. And there was one person out of many who who was very eager to get this money and who actually had some skill in tracking. And his name was Suraqa ibn Malik ibn Ju'shum al-Kinani. Radiallahu anhu, right? Because Suraka is a strange name, isn't it? It's not a very common name, right? If you go, if you look on Google for Suraka, you get about five or six people, right? I'm like I'm in the top of the Google search, like I'm like number six or seven. I'm on the front page. It goes back to, you know, my translations and stuff. Anyhow, Suraka ibn Malik ibn Juhshum al Kinani was a very skilled hunter and tracker he was a man of the wilderness he was able to track and hunt very well and he tells the story you know he eventually becomes muslim it would take a while but he eventually became muslim so he tells the story about the pursuit he says i hope to be the one to bring them back and receive the hundred she camels so i rode out in their pursuit and when my horse was going at a swift pace it stumbled and threw me off, causing me to fall down. I then took out my azlam. What are the azlam? The azlam are these divining arrows. You know, we have rock, paper, scissors, or we have people flipping a coin to decide what to do. Uh, that's not exactly the same thing as the azlam. The azlam are more superstitious than that. The azlam. When you hear this term, it refers to divining arrows, where you cast arrows in a certain way to get a yes or a no. He describes this. You know, he had some on him. He said, after he fell off the horse, you know, he's starting to think, you know, is this worth it? Should I go ahead with this? So he takes out the divining arrows. He says these were the three arrows that were used as a type of omen, the first of which is written, Don't do it. The second one has written on the arrow shaft, Yes. And the third one is void. So you have a third one. You have to start over. I pulled out the divining arrows and got the result I did not want. It said, Don't do it. But I refused the decision and I pulled them out again, only to get, Don't do it, a second time, and Don't do it a third time, And so on. So I continued in pursuit until my horse's four legs became stuck in the ground and threw me off again. As my horse pulled its legs out of the ground, a smoke arose from the holes." So picture the horse going through a sandy area, but the feet are sinking in a very abnormal way. And as the he falls off, as a result, And as the horse gets its own feet out of this area they're sinking into, smoke starts to rise. This is completely out of the ordinary. And it's very alarming to Suraqa ibn Madik. And when he saw that, he said, I realize that he, meaning the Prophet was protected against me. And he also realized that he was close. Because if he was on the other side of the city, this probably wouldn't have happened. It's only as he's getting closer and closer to Thawr cave that this is happening. He says, I realize that he's protected. So at that moment, I call out in the valley, I am Suraka ibn Malik. Grant me respite and allow me to speak with you. For by Allah, I will not bring you any harm. So, the permission was given and he addressed Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu and there was a conversation and then he addressed the Prophet sallallahu wasallam and then he said I asked him to give me something that would be a sign between him and me so he told Abu Bakr to write something and I took the writing and I put it in my quiver and returned to Quraysh There's a written guarantee for the future, something that he's going to take out later in the future that's going to be of great help to him. So he takes this piece of paper, this writing, puts it in his quiver, he leaves them, and he goes back to Quraysh. He says that when I got back, I mentioned nothing of the matter to Quraysh, and I said I saw no one. Now, this is not the end of his story. He eventually embraces Islam, and he also receives a glad tiding from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi that happens later on after the passing of the Prophet Sallallahu as the Muslims were making inroads into the Persian Empire. We'll get back to his story later. But that was a pursuit that was thwarted in this miraculous manner. Quraysh has no idea. And they continued their pursuit of the Prophet Sallallahu individually and in groups and we know the famous story of how they came very close to the cave uh, it's a very beautiful story and we know that as they made their way south they get near the cave and Allah Ta'ala shielded the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and Abu Bakr most of the narrations in the seerah mentioned that the cave was shielded by Two doves and their eggs in a nest. Uh, other narrations mention the doves as well as a spider web on the front of the cave. Other narrations even mention a growing of a bush that's blocking the view into the, the mouth of the cave. There are various narrations. And when Quraysh reached the mouth of the cave, the doves and the spider webs are blocking the entrance. Now they were thinking to go inside, but one of the people with them in pursuit, Umayyya bin Khalaf, he says, Why bother? It's covered with a spider's web older than Muhammad himself. So it, wasn't, it didn't even look like a fresh spider web, whatever that looks like. It looks old and raggedy, like it's been there for a really long time, much longer than the Hijra when they left Mecca. So he says, why bother? It's older than Muhammad himself. Don't go inside. So, one narration says that as they see them approaching, Abu Bakr anhu is getting afraid and worried. And he says, if one of them just stops to look down at his feet, they're going to see us. And then the Prophet says, La تحزن إن Do not be aggrieved. Indeed, Allah is with us. So those in pursuit reached the mouth of the cave, but they turned away. I want to look at this narration in a little bit of detail. We mentioned before on several occasions that in the subject of seerah, the authors of the seerah, those who compile these narrations, are generally more lenient when it comes to what they admit as uh, evidence or narrations so there's a certain uh, tasahul or leniency in what they accept so anything pertaining to core aqidah beliefs or hala and haram has to have a much higher standard of proof but for virtues and merits and certain finer details of the seerah Uh, you find a lot of narrations may have, you know, maybe there's unknown people in the chain or there's multiple chains and each one has some kind of uh, defect, some illa, but they still admit them because it serves as a part of the historical record. That applies here because the narrations that mention the incident of the near discovery, uh, some mention a bush, some mention uh, doves' eggs or pigeons' eggs and the pigeons. Some mention the spider web, some mention all three, some mention just two. So you have this narration from Imam Ahmad in his Musnad, which only mentions the spider web, no doves. Ibn Kathir and Ibn Hajar al Asqalani both say this narration is Hasan, so it's acceptable. You have Imam al-Haythami recording in his Majma' al-Zawa'id that it was a web and a nest with two dove eggs and this narration he says is sound then you have Haythami again along with Imam al-Suyuti recording some narrations where the Prophet وسلم, made dua for the doves asking Allah to bless them to give them barakah and that the hatchlings from those eggs went on to become the progen- progenitors of all of the doves that you see around the Kaaba. Uh, there's, there's someone I know personally, a student who did some research into this where he compiled all of the narrations which mentioned the doves. Uh, there's many. And they say th- things like this. Um, it will say that the Prophet made dua that Allah bless those doves because they are guarding the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and Allah answered the dua and made it so that the hatchlings in that nest came to be the progenitors, the you could say the grandparents of all of the doves that came to be the doves in the Haram Sharif. If you go to the Haram You know, I I don't know how it is now with all of these monstrosities surrounding the Kaaba, the clock tower and all this stuff. But it used to be that going at certain times of the day, you would see scores of doves literally making tawaf. You see them flying around like this. So according to those narrations, all of these doves are the great, 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 grandchildren of the doves that were guarding the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Now, of course, those narrations all have from a, a hadith standpoint, the chains are all, are all with their degrees of weakness. So it's not something you take as an aqidah, but it's, it's there. And, you know, at any rate, I mean, where are the doves coming from? You know, you could trace their lineage. I mean, at some point, you're going to have some grandfather dove that may have had some encounter with the people of that time at any rate. So that's an interesting thing you find in this hero works too. How long... So they didn't find them. And how long did they remain in the cave? The narrations say they remained in the cave for three nights. And Abdullah, the son of Abu Bakr, would sometimes spend those nights with them. So all three or one or two nights he'd spend with them. And he would leave in the darkness of the early morning of the pre-dawn so he could get back to Mecca before Quraysh wake up and discover he was gone. So he's spending the daytime collecting intelligence and then he goes and spends the night there and leaves in the early pre-dawn time to get back before they know anything is up. It's reported that on the third night as the Prophet and Abu Bakr were about to set off on their journey. The Prophet alayhi stood facing Mecca and he said, Wallahi innaki la ardi wa ahabbu ardi Allah wa ardi ilallah, walawla anni ukhrijtu minki ma kharajt. He says, by Allah, you are the best and most beloved of Allah's lands in the sight of Allah. And were it not that your people have expelled me, I would not have left. So they leave the cave of Thawr. He makes this closing statement. And then they meet up with their travel guide from there onwards, a man by the name of Abdullah ibn Urayqit, who wasn't a Muslim, but he was their travel guide. And they begin to make their way. They're making their way to Medina now. This is the beginning of the the actual journey on camel, going to Medina. And Abu Bakr, you understand with camels, they're also carrying goods. So you're not on the camel the entire time. You're walking a good amount of the time. You're aiming to cover anywhere from 10 to 15 miles a day on an average journey like this. On camel, maybe more. But he's walking with the camel. The narration says that he's walking with the camel at night. And once again, he is going into the front, going to the back, going to the right, going to the left. And one narration says that as he's doing this on the Hijra route, he's walking and this time he's behind the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and he, they encounter a man on the road. And this man says, who is this man in front of you? So here you have Abu Bakr in the back, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi in the front. The man says, who is this man in front of you? And Abu Bakr siddiq radiallahu anhu says, this is the man who is showing me the way. Yuduluni This is the man showing me the way. That man understood him to say that he is the travel guide. Abu Bakr siddiq means something entirely different. He means, no, he is the one guiding me to the way, the real way with the, the capital W. And, and this is a kind of, we call this uh, tawriya or Ta'arid. He's telling the truth, but what he intends is different from what the person understands. And he's speaking the truth. And next week, because right now we've covered the hijrah leaving to the house of Abu Bakr, then from the house to the cave of Thawr, and then from the cave of Thawr to the outskirts of Mecca on the early part of the hijrah. And next week, insha'Allah, we're going to look at the events that happened along the way until the arrival at Quba. And now, insha'Allah, we want to conclude very briefly with a look at some of the poetry in our tradition that speaks about this Hijra journey. Uh, in Islam's tradition of praise, prose and poetry is vast but one of the most famous poems in praise of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is Qasidatul Burda of Imam al-Busayri. And in his Qasidah, his rhyming ode in praise of the Prophet Sallallahu he talks about the Hijrah and the events that occurred. And speaking about the topic we address today, he says in very beautiful, very beautiful poetry, فَالصِدْقُ فِي الْغَارِ وَالصِّدِّيقُ لَمْ يَرِيمَ وَهُمْ يَقُولُونَ مَا بِالْغَارِ مِنْ أَرِيمِ He says, truthfulness and the true one in the cave wavered not. While they said, no one who breathes is in this cave. So Imam al Sayri is saying, الصِدْقُ فِي الْغَارِ so truthfulness and the true one were in the cave. Truthfulness here, meaning the embodiment of truthfulness, Rasulullah, and Saddiq, the truthful one, Abu Bakr, were in the cave. While they said, No one who breathes is in the cave. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protected the Prophet by means of what the disbelievers of Quraysh saw when they saw the web and the doves. If Allah Ta'ala had willed, he could have blinded their eyes without there being any spider, web, or any doves. But Allah Ta'ala willed to create a, a material diversion that would prevent them from discovering the Prophet ﷺ. And so they said, "There's no one who breathes is inside of the cave." He continues in the next line. Wa ala lam wa lam they supposed that a dove would never perch, or a spider would spin its web for the best of creation. So it's like there's an abstract person. Who's asking, well, why did they say that there's no one breathing in the cave? And he's answering here by saying, when they saw the dove hovering over the mouth of the cave and they saw the spider web, they thought it was empty because normally doves will not put their nest near human beings, nor will a spider weave its web if a person's right there. Then he says, <laughs> من الدروع وعن عار من الاطمي. He says the protection by Allah absolve them of need for additional armor or lofty fortresses. So he's saying that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protecting the Prophet and Abu Bakr in the cave absolve them from needing coats of armor or lofty fortresses like the fortress offered to him by Tufayr bin Amr, al-Dawsi. So Allah Ta'ala's wiqayah, his protection. Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala protected the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and Abu Bakr in the cave, not with armor, not with a steel door, not with a fortress. He protected the Prophet Sallallahu by means of the weakest thing in creation. You can think of doves as being weak, but the spider web is weaker. And what does Allah say about the spider web? Yeah. In Ahwal al La Bayt al The flimsiest of homes is the home of the spider, the spider web. So Allah Ta'ala created the spider web, the flimsiest of things, which guarded the Prophet. And there's a lesson in this. That no matter who you are, no matter what your status is in society, if you are a member of the Ummah of the Prophet there's always some way you can honor him and uh, do something that furthers his message, that spreads his deen. Doesn't matter. You don't have to say, oh, I'm not at this level or this rank. You take what you have and you live it, right? The spider served. What about us? So this is what Imam al busayri said in his Qasida regarding the issue of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in the cave of Thawr. Now this entire story is basically what happens right before, uh, during, in the immediate start of the Hijrah. And all of this comes together as the circumstance behind the words of Allah Ta'ala in Surah anfal in Surah Anfal, Allah Subh'anaHu Wa ta'ala says, أَو أَو وَيَمْكُرُ Allah reminds His beloved Wasallam. and remember, when those who disbelieved plotted against you to restrain you, or to kill you, or to evict you, but they plan and Allah plans and Allah is the best of planners. Because remember the shaytan Najdi, one person said, let us detain him. And they scratched that idea. The other person said, let us exile him. Let us kick him out. And that idea was scratched. And then the third one, Abu Jahl said, let us kill him. And that idea was approved. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions it in this verse that that's, that was the plot and here is the answer to that plot they got out they didn't get discovered